1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The first three words of chapter four point us to a fundamental truth concerning the Bible and the preaching of this text and every other text in the, new, in the, in the Bible. Having given instructions on the proper order of leadership in the church and its role as, and the church's role as the guardian of truth in chapter three, Paul now turns his attention to the ever-present danger of false teaching and how the church is to detect and be victorious over such teaching. And he begins with these three words. Now the Spirit. The use of the definite article here separates this singular spirit, capital S, of God from the deceitful, plural, demonic spirits that he's warning the church about. His reference here to the spirit also reminds us that these words are not the opinion of a man or the wisdom of a human teacher, but are, listen carefully, but are the word of God. Paul does not indicate here how he received these instructions from the Spirit, but he makes clear that these instructions are from the Spirit. They are from God. When preaching through the letters of Paul, I often refer to Paul as the author. I may, I may say phrases like Paul says here or Paul uses this particular word here. And often to indicate known historical context because known historical context helps us understand why he was saying to what he was saying uh, about and, and helps us understand the meaning of the passage. But we should always be mindful. Even if I say Paul says such and such that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thus the letters to Timothy are instructional to the church today, not because Paul wrote them. <laughs> not because he wrote them and because he's a wise biblical teacher or, or a godly man. No, these words are instructional to us today because they are the word of God given to the church. These words are 
written or penned by Paul, but they are the infallible, inspired word of God. So Paul begins, now the Spirit. And he's telling us that God inspired him to warn the church of demonic spirits that were working and that are working to deceive and lead some away from the faith. And I want you to hear me very clearly, friends. This danger is an ever-present danger today. Paul identifies the threats in verses 1, 2, and 3 of demonic lies and then instructs the church to how, how to recognize and to defeat them from verses 3 all the way to verse 16. Now, we're just going to go through 5 today, verse 5. I recognize that the use of the word demonic is a little unsettling. We don't use that word very often. We might say something is bad. We might say something is unwise. If we want to be stronger in our language, we might say it's unbiblical. We might say it's not true. But demonic makes us a little uneasy. It's a word clearly referring to demons, the work of Satan, I just want to say to you this morning, it is unsettling, but it is also true. And using that word, because it comes from the text, is right and good because it helps us not diminish the danger and not diminish the, 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 uh, the reality of what is happening even today. It would be a It'd be a foolish thing indeed for us to assume that the, the, the demonic work of Satan that was attacking the church of the first century somehow has gone away for us today. So from verses 1 through 5, I want you to see and to be able to recognize the danger of demonic lies and I want you to see today the power of God's word over them and how the church is to respond and be victorious over them. So with that in mind, I want to begin with a foundational statement really from just one, verses one and two, and that is that such lies are demonic. Lies are demonic. Paul is making it clear that Satan is actively working to deceive the church. It is a present real danger. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, some translations may say, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. A present danger. It's interesting here, verse 1 indicates that in the future tense, that in later times, he writes, some will depart. Then, in, uh, in the same line of thinking, Paul switches to the present tense in verses 3, 4, and 5. And I think the point there is that these later times have already begun and are a present real danger to the church. Not something that's going to happen someday. It is something that is happening today. 
When dealing with false teaching and that threatens the church, usually the focus is on the false teachers. And, and certainly there, that's an appropriate reality in that you can go to other places. When I preached through 2 Corinthians, we often talked about what, what, the, the word of God's instructions to how to deal with false teachers. However, the Bible points the church to a more dangerous threat in this passage, that these lies are the work of demonic spirits. Now, this is not unique to this passage. Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8 says, these are the words of Jesus, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul wrote to the Ephesians to put on the, whole, the full armor of God so that they could stand against the efforts of the devil. When he wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the work, the deceiving work of the devil. I believe the church is most vulnerable when it ignores the efforts and work of Satan to deceive. If we come to a spot where we think these dangers are no longer real, when, if we come to a, a place where we are no longer afraid, actively guarding against the demonic lies that threaten the church, we find ourselves in a most vulnerable place. Lies that deceive and confuse the truth of God are more lethal than murderous attacks of those who hate the church. Lies that draw the church away from the faith are more lethal than government persecution. Lies that capture your attention away from God's truth poison more than any virus or drug. Awakening to the real and present threat of Satan's work to deceive is vital for the church to be effective and faithful. And so Paul begins... From the, from the testimony of the Spirit to us to say, listen, be careful, be on guard. Satan is actively working to deceive. And ultimately, Satan's purpose is to destroy. Jesus taught in John 10.10 10, that Satan's purpose is just that. When he said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 1 of chapter 4 testifies to the source of the threat to the church as uh, deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. The word that is translated there as deceitful means pertaining to causing someone to be mistaken. Causing someone to be mistaken, deceitful, that which deceives. In other words, to, to, to trick them away from what is actually, what is true. The conduit of the deception is through the insincere liars whose consciences are seared. There are two words in verse 2 that point to the danger and purpose of Satan. The first is insincere liars. The word there that is translated as insincere is the word from which we get our English word hypocrite. 
It, it means to give an impression of having certain purposes or motivations while really having quite different ones to pretend to act hypocritically. And then the second word that I think is very helpful there is the word seared. Now, that word is, that, that, that is translated seared means to be, uh, to, uh, to be seared in their conscience, at, to be unwilling to learn from one's conscience, to refuse to learn from one's conscience, or to be completely insensitive to it. In literal terms, the, the word means to brand with a hot iron. Like you might be familiar with branding an animal or, or cattle. Now, some commentators have pointed to this idea of seared conscience as Satan marking them as his own, which is not an inappropriate way to understand the, the word, but it seems to be here that Paul is using this word, this branding, this searing with something hot in a slightly different way. It seems like he's using it in the sense of cauterizing something. Cauterize is to burn the skin or a nerve or even like a, a tumor or something off. It destroys it by burning and it renders it completely insensitive, particularly when the nerves are burnt. And I think that's probably closer to what is intended here. That Satan uses convincing liars who are insensitive to the truth or the well-being of the church to sow destruction and dysfunction in the church. Now, the conduit is the liars, but, 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 the, but clearly here the focus is on the source. The source is demonic. And the way that, that, that demonic lies come through are those who have been cauterized from any conscience, any sense of well-being of, to, the, to, the, to, the, to, to righteousness before God or the well-being of the church. And the church, therefore, must be on guard against such false teachers and recognize the threat is not from the work of men, but from the work of demons. Now, this is why I think this is important. Because if we think the threat is a threat of man, we'll also be tempted to think we can handle it on our own. And that's why I think it's important when we read this passage to recognize the Spirit instructs the threat is not from the liars, it's from the demons that are behind the liars. It may be insincere liars who are preaching and teaching falsehoods in the church, but we need to understand those falsehoods have a source, and that source is demonic. And friends, the only way to respond to demonic lies is through the spirit of the living God, not the work of men. Lies are demonic. And in verse 3, the instructions are given of what is the sort of the, the genesis or the the, the general reality of these lies and that, they are, that, that these lies deny the goodness of God. Now, it's interesting here. You might think that you, you would go to some closer theological concept. So the, the lies deny the resurrection of Jesus. The lies deny salvation through the blood of Jesus. And certainly that 
is part of false teaching, but, but here the instruction is a more fundamental reality that the demonic lies deny the goodness of God. Look what he says in verse 3. In sincerity of liars who con- whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be, to, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. At the heart of demonic lies is a denial of the goodness of God. First, they hide the goodness of the creation. After warning of the demonic efforts, Paul now turns his attention to how such teachers' teachings can be tested to determine if they are true or false. And the instruction here is that the demonic lies deny and hide the goodness of God's creation. Paul points to two such denials in the first part of verse 3, marriage and food. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is representative of the most common lies against the goodness of creation. Marriage and food are the most basic appetites of the human body. Sex and hunger. Marriage points to the sexual union of husband and wife and the, and the, and the uh, related goodnesses of pleasure and union and children and family. Food points to the natural daily desire to be satisfied and to have our hunger met. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that all things that God created are good. You don't have to be a theologian, you just have to read the text. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, after everything God created, he says, and it was good. God created Eve for Adam and instructed them to marry and be, and be fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God created that. God instructed that. And without any other further explanation, we must declare those things that God created are good. Thus marriage and sex and the blessing of children are good and a blessing of the Lord. Genesis chapter 2 tells us That God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and provided them food from every tree. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. And we need to say from that text, rightly, that the goodness of creation included, this is interesting, hunger and food 
and the pleasure of eating. Because in the perfect created order, before there was the curse of sin, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, instructed them to work it and enjoy the produce that it provided and the eating of it. The reality, though, of a world under the curse of sin is that in the, that in the, the good things of God's, that all the good things of God's creation, because of sin, are perverted and often abused. Marriage and sex are perverted and presented as destructive and dangerous. Just take a mental accounting of how many sexual images you've seen this past week. And my guess of it is the overwhelming majority, if not all of them, were not biblical images, were not biblical messages, but were perverted, destructive messages of sex. There's no wonder you and I might have the opinion that it is bad. Food is consumed not to satisfy the body in our modern day, but in excessive amounts and unhealthy contents. And so it's not uncommon for you might to maybe have a relationship with food that is not according to the created order of its goodness, but some hostile or dysfunctional reality to it. At the heart of demonic lies is the denial of the goodness of God's creation and, and presenting what God created as good as dirty, dangerous, or dysfunctional. Not only does the demonic lies hide the goodness of God's creation, but, but in response, demonic lies also elevate the works of man over the sovereignty of God. So notice what he says there in verse 3. Who forbid marriage... Now, there's a sense there that those who forbid marriage and denial of food are elevating the denial, the forbidding of marriage and the denial of food as something you can do that will redeem you over these things. And what that is, is a wicked, demonic effort to elevate man's work over and above the sovereignty of God. Now, there are two responses to the denial of the goodness of God's creation in general. One is to reject any restriction, and the other is to the rejection of the blessing itself. To reject the restriction is to pervert the goodness of God's gifts with unrestrained consumption. That's probably closer to where we are in our modern context. So just think about marriage. What does marriage and, and the related blessing of sex, what does that look like when you reject the, the godly restrictions that he has pushed on, pushed on it? Well, fornication and adultery, porn, pornography, homosexuality, n- public nudity, all those things that we are experiencing today in our modern context is a rejection of restrictions. What about of food? Well, unrestrained with food would be overconsumption, You don't preach this message near Thanksgiving. Drunkenness. The other side would be to reject the blessing, and that is to deny the goodness of God's creation and declare it as bad or evil. And that's where I think 
this passage is pointing to, the forbidding of marriage and the requiring of abstinence from particular foods. Now, in order to sustain life, you can't abstain from all food, but generally there would be particular foods that would be rejected. Both the rejection of restrictions and the rejection of the blessings of God are the same in that they are the denial of the sovereignty of God. When you reject the rejection of restrictions denies God's sovereignty over his creation and declares that man is the only determiner of what is right and wrong. It's what we're living in today. Man is saying, I will declare how the gift of marriage, how the gift of sex is to be used because I am the ultimate ruler of my own body and my own life. The rejection of God's blessing denies God's word that all things were created as good. The passage here says, listen, marriage and food, God gave to us as a blessing. And for you to say those good gifts are bad or wicked is to deny the sovereignty of God in his creation and in his blessing and giving of them. Marriage and food are not good because of man. Marriage and food are good because God created them. Do you hear me? Those things are not made good by anything you and I do. They are good because of who made them and created them. The sinful perversions of man do not overcome or overrule the goodness of God's creation. So friends, even though our experience of these things may be perverted, and even though our experience of these things may be skewed, that does not negate the reality of the created order. Marriage is good no matter how we abuse it or pervert it. Food is good no matter how much we overconsume or, or misunderstand it. They're good because of God. They're not bad because of man. Receiving the good blessings of God's creation with thanksgiving is to submit to the sovereignty of God over his creation and you. In other words, the instruction here is to receive these things with thanksgiving because the with thanksgiving is a recognition that as you receive them, you're receiving them not as something that you have dominion over. You're receiving them as a gift, a good gift from a perfect and good God. One other thing here about the lies deny the goodness of God is that they enslave to condemnation. My heart breaks on this point because I think this is where the modern context is. The destructiveness of demonic lies is that they promise salvation through efforts that lead only to more condemnation. Salvation, friends, is found only through Jesus who satisfied the wrath of God over your sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. And only through his death, burial, and resurrection can you be restored to a right relationship with God. That's it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So he's it. The demonic lies of Satan promise that through some other means, like the denial of marriage or food, you can attain for yourself righteousness through your efforts. But the reality of it is, no matter how hard you try, all the efforts of man lead to more condemnation. 
I would encourage you to listen carefully. Listen carefully to your secular friends and neighbors. They may be living a lifestyle that you find repugnant, but I would dare to say they are not amoral. They're not living in such a manner that has rejected morals. In fact, they're desperately trying, in most cases, to be moral. They're likely working hard to be good by some standard. And usually that standard is from rejecting what they have determined as bad or pursuing what they have determined that will bring them the most pleasure. What is often called in our modern context cancel culture is a secular effort to enforce a moral standard. However, any effort, listen to me, any effort to be righteous through the efforts of man only enslaves to more condemnation because in your efforts to, to achieve righteousness, you're denying the sovereignty of God. So in your efforts to be moral through your own works, you're denying the only hope of salvation through the work of God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set you free. The lies, the demonic lies of Satan will entangle you and ensnare you in all kinds of efforts that promise to set you free, that promise to bring righteousness and, and salvation in your life, but only enslave you to more and more and more condemnation. So what are we to do? Well, that's the problem, verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul begins the answer, the response, in verses 4 through 16. And this morning, I just want to give attention to verse 4 and 5 here. He says in verse 4, for everything, how much? Everything created by God is good. That's a pretty heavy, broad statement. And in case you didn't understand what he meant, he said, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to receive with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How does the church respond to demonic lies? The word here is instructive that the response to demonic lies is the truth of God. I would just characterize this as the triumph of truth. And beginning here is where you have to start is declare the truth. Identifying a lie compels those who know the truth to dispel it. If you've ever been in a room where somebody clearly is telling a lie and you know it, there's just something God created within us that makes us want to go, no, it's not true. The last part of verse 3 instructs those who believe and know the truth to receive what God has created with thanksgiving. But more than just instructing the church to receive marriage and food with thanksgiving, Paul affirms the fundamental truth of the goodness of God's creation in verse 4 when he says, everything created by God is good. Not some things, not originally. No, he says everything created by God, by definition, is good. It's been attributed 
to the Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels as saying, telling a lie often enough, tell a lie often enough, it becomes true. Whether or not he actually said this or not, we can agree that if a lie is told enough, many will believe it as truth. But we also must attest to, it doesn't matter how often a lie is told, it's still a lie and the truth is still true. How the church is to respond to demonic lies is to declare what is true. Friends, the Bible's instructions to us is that you and I are to be truth declarers. This is what Paul does in verse 4. So in response to demonic lies that we're saying there's something wicked, dirty, nasty, not godly about marriage. There's something unsavory worth rejecting about food. Nope. The Word of God says, Paul declares it in verse 4, everything that God made is good. Some were saying that Marriage and sex were not good. Some were saying that certain foods were not good. But the Bible declares that everything that God makes is good. We read it earlier today. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why would we store up the word of God in our hearts so that we would not sin against you? So that when we're confronted with a lie... We respond with the word of truth. Everything God created is good. Have you not read Genesis 1? But Psalm 119 goes on in verse 13 to say, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In other words, I am speaking not my words, but your words. I am declaring into a world that is mired and stuck and confused by demonic lies. I am declaring what is true according to your word. Dear friends, dear church, your only defense against the threat of demonic lies is to know God's truth so that you can declare God's truth. Declare what is true. Secondly, define all things by God's truth. You must learn to define everything according to God's word, and listen carefully, not your experience. As guardians of the truth, that's what Paul instructed the church to be in chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. As guardians of the, church, of the, of the truth, the, the church must declare to the world what is true according to God's word, not according to man's experience. In fact, I would even press this to say, we must declare God's truth even when it seems contrary to our experience. Experience, friends, can lead you to conclusions contrary to the truth. This is why. Because your experience is always colored by sin. And it is always colored by the brokenness of this world. 
It is also always, and I use those words intentionally, always a poor lens through which to understand God's truth. God's word is always truth. But experience does not always lead to truth. One of the great dangers of the church is to elevate experience over God's word. So let me illustrate what I mean by this. If you have experienced an abusive marriage or a painful divorce, the honest truth is, as you sit right now, your experience may have led you to see marriage as something less than good. And depending on how abusive or how ugly the divorce was, you may even say, my experience has led me to believe that marriage is bad. My generation, so if you're 40, 50, we were the generation that grew up with parents who were divorcing in astonishing rates. If you look at kids today, they have rejected marriage completely. And if you ask why so many of them have rejected marriage completely, they'll say because the example of our parents was a poor example and I don't want anything like that. Their experience has led them to believe that marriage is bad. It's not a good test. Experience is not a good testimony unto truth. If you've experienced sexual abuse, then you, you may see Sex as destructive, dirty, bad, because your experience has colored everything you know about sexuality. If your home life was chaotic as a child and abusive, you may see the goodness of children and family as something to be, to be rejected. If you've experienced a pastor who used his authority to control and to enforce wicked legalism or in some other ways to abuse you physically or spiritually, you may see the authority of overseers as something to be diminished and avoided. And you really struggled as I preached through chapter 3. But friends, brothers and sisters, Christians cannot define the goodness and proper function of creation according to our experience. We must declare God's word and we must define all things by God's truth, not our experience. We must define all things, declare all things according to God's truth, how he declared it as it is. And then lastly, here's a hopeful word for you. Let God's word redeem and restore. I want you to look again in your text to verse 5. So verse 4, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's declaring God's truth, defining everything by God's truth. But then he says in verse 5, for it, marriage and food, any other thing that is created good by God that maybe experience has sullied, for it is made holy. Some of your translations may say hallowed. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let God's word redeem and restore. Second half of verse 4 and all of verse 5 point to how Christians are to respond to 
the brokenness of demonic lies. So I'm, I, I, and we are not sugarcoating the reality that your experience may have brought you to a place where academically, mentally, you're able to say, yes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that marriage is good, sex is good, food is good, the things that God created are good. And yet at the same time as you're sitting in your pew, there is a war going on between your head and your heart. In your head you're going, I agree. But in your heart your experience says, yeah, but you don't know, Pastor, how wicked my marriage was. You don't know, Pastor, how awful, horrible my childhood was. And your experience is pushing so hard against you. That's where we get to verse 5. And I say to you, let God's word redeem and restore. Verse 5 points to how Christians are to respond to the brokenness of demonic lies. Nothing is to be rejected, but everything is to be received with thanksgiving. In other words, humbly before the Lord. And then in verse 5, the word declares that things created by God, good by God, but corrupted by man's sin are made holy. Let that word just sit for a minute. They are made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now listen, friends struggle with the word holy. That's the same word used in Matthew and Luke in the Lord's Prayer when, when Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. Yeah, it's that word for holy. It simply means to be pure, holy, acceptable. So hopefully, it's a wonderfully hopeful word here. The idea here is that things corrupted by sin can be purified by the word of God and prayer. The Word of God instructs you how you are to understand and to receive what God has created. So in other words, even though your experience says something is bad, when you come to the truth of God through His Word, it gives instructions of how you are to understand it, how you are to enjoy it, and how you are to receive it. Prayer draws your attention to how God would have you enjoy and use his creation for his glory. In other words, as you receive the gifts of God, your marriage, your food, is received with thanksgiving and prayer. God, how am I to use this good gift that you've given me for your glory's sake and your purpose's sake? The call here is to redeem and restore to holiness what the Lord has provided for you through thanksgiving and prayer. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it happens in a moment. But the instruction here is, dear friends, we must be driven and controlled and instructed by God's word. Even, especially, in contradiction to our experience. And let God's word redefine what your experience has confused. Let God's word redefine what demonic lies have confused. And as you receive it with thanksgiving, be in prayer before the Lord. How are you, how am I to use what you have given for your glory? Friends, everything that God created is good. Therefore, it is not only good for you, it is good for this church, it is good for this community. Receive it with thanksgiving. And prayer. 
on the evening of June the 13th, 1525, a most scandalous wedding ceremony occurred. The bride, the bride had only recently escaped her home under the cover of night. And neither she nor her groom were believed to be free to marry. Some said that the marriage was a sexual sin. Others said the wedding was a sin against God himself. The union was undeniably in defiance of the Pope and considered heretical to the church, to the Catholic church. As such, the judgment of those against the bride and groom was that they, were both, they would both burn in hell and any children born to them would be deformed and die in, in pre, during the pregnancy. And if any child survived pregnancy and birth, they would grow up to be the very antichrist. That's a scandalous wedding. The bride was a nun named Katerina. The groom was a monk named Martin. You may know him as Martin Luther. Though they had taken vows of chastity, both had been convinced through the study of God's word that marriage was indeed not forbidden, but to be received with thanksgiving. It was a small Wittenberg chapel where they were married in defiance of the Pope and in obedience to God. They declared with their marriage vows that all things created by God are good. By his admission, Luther entered into the marriage not for romance. In his own words, he said, to spite the Pope and the devil, that doesn't make a very good Hallmark card. And he said, as a school of character, again, not the romantic. But God would bless their union with, uh, with uh, uh, abiding affection and eventually six children who were not deformed and were not the Antichrist. Today, it's really hard for you and I where we sit to understand how radical this wedding was. They risked everything to receive with thanksgiving God's good gift of marriage. And in doing so, rescued a biblical understanding of marriage for generations to come. Every generation faces demonic lies that at their core, at their heart, deny the goodness of God's creation and tempt men and women away from the faith. Brothers and sisters, our calling is to declare God's truth for the defense of truth and the blessing of the church.
Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.